Welcome. It's good to have you all here this morning. So you guys seem like a little bit, you know, kind of like mellow this morning. What's up? A little bit. So thanks to our youth worship team for leading us this morning. You know, one of the things I've always appreciated about Hope Chapel is that we've had a commitment to being a multi-generational church. But you know, part of what that means is that when you're committed to being a multi-generational church, it's, you're gonna, that means you're going to have a church that you're not always totally happy with. Meaning that the way you may like it is not the way it works for a different generation. And one of the things I've appreciated about Hope Chapel is that for, by and large, I mean, there are always a few moments, but by and large, we've really embraced that journey. There hasn't been, a, you know, you know if, you, if you grew up in church in the 50s and the 60s, you like it and expect it a certain way, and when it deals with those who were born in, since 2000, it's totally different, right? And so it's, it's it, in, in the fact that we've embraced trying to be multi-generational and said, that's what we need to do. That's the legacy of the gospel that we need to share with our region. I've always appreciated that about Hope Chapel, and I'm great to have our, our worship team on the, on the um, our youth worship team with us this morning. So um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, so I want to invite you to grab your Bibles. And um, I want to reiterate what Christina said uh, just a few minutes ago about our upcoming holiday weekend services for cr- our Christmas services. You know, uh, let me remind you that every survey that is taken says that this time of year is a great time to invite somebody to come to church with you. The vast majority of people say, especially around the time of Christmas, that they would go to church if somebody invited them. So we're trying to make that easy. In fact, I was watching the news this morning while I was eating my cereal after snow blowing my driveway, and, and, um, and they said that the, the weather for Sunday the 24th looks dynamic right now. So I don't know what that means, but I, I'm really glad we're having a Saturday night service to go along with our Sunday night service in case we get snowed out, because one year we did get snowed out on Christmas Eve. We got, our neighbors got a whole kitchen full of appliances because we got over a foot of snow on Christmas Day, and so they were, they were thrilled. So anyways, but uh, look at, so invite your friends, come out and join us and those kinds of things. So, hey, um, so we've been, we've been, this is our second week in a series that we've entitled Unexpected Christmas. And this is, this is the launching pad, right, from which we're exploring the message of Christmas to us is that for more than a 1,000 years, right at a 1,000 years, the most anticipated event in the history of the people of God was the coming of the Messiah. Since the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah and those eras when, when God gave this promise of the expected Messiah, the, the Israelites had been eager for the coming of the Messiah. And when he came, almost nobody noticed. A few family members, you know, Elizabeth and Zacharias, they kind of knew. Joseph and Mary, some shepherds, some guys who traveled from halfway around the world, and it maybe took them as long as a year or more to get there. You know, they're, they're, just a few people knew. Everybody else was totally oblivious. And, and I don't know about you, but that strikes me as a warning, Right? Because it's so easy for us to think, well, I get Christmas. I know what it's all about. And, and, and yet, we don't really have any clue of what God's really trying to communicate to us in Christmas. 
It's, it's so easy to get caught up in all the things that not only somehow the, the church is somehow bred, but, but the, the culture is kind of brought in. And, you know, when Christmas is about, you know, it's, it's about family and it's about hope and it's about love and all these kinds of things. And, and we, we decorate our trees and we do all of our things. And somehow or another, we get Christmas in those moments. And I think when we do that, we're pretty much like the 99.9% of the world that missed the coming of the Messiah the first time around. And so we need to be open to the unexpected if we're really going to get Christmas. And so that's what we've been looking at in our series. And, and so we've, we've tried to reflect that just a little bit on our platform. I mean, some of you have noticed uh, about our upside-down Christmas trees, you know. And so we've, we've appropriated a cultural symbol related to Christmas, right? I mean... Everywhere you go, you see Christmas trees, and you see lit-up trees, right? Everywhere you go, right? And, and, and we've taken it, and we've turned it upside down because that's just a little bit unexpected. But, you know, actually, for a long period of time in certain parts of the world, upside-down trees, upside-down Christmas trees were used all the time to reflect the Christmas message. Now, I don't know if you, you know, the, the idea here of of. You know, when you have a tree upside down and it kind of points this way, it's the idea of God coming down to us. And they used the tree to remind themselves that God was coming down to us. The tree also, as you look at it as it going up, it kind of spreads out. And and to them, they saw the, the vision, if you will, the image, the symbol of the cross. So for years and years, for, for centuries in some parts of the world, what they embraced as the symbol of Christmas was an upside-down tree. So we have upside-down trees in our services and in our lobby just to kind of get your attention a little bit, like, what's up with that, right, you know? And then on top of that, we're trying to communicate a message. So we, we've been parked in Matthew's gospel in the first chapter, and I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, and if you're here in our in our, our, our worship center with us, you're gonna, and you want to use one of the Bibles that's made available to you underneath your seat, you're going to find our text today on page 813. But we have been starting at least the first couple of messages related to this unexpected Christmas out of Matthew's genealogy. And what we saw last week out of your confession was that, for the most part, all of you just skip over the genealogies when you come to them in the Bible, right? When you get the begats, you just, all right, where's that chapter end? And that's where you go, right? And there's a couple of reasons why we do that. One, because most of the time we can't pronounce half the names, right? And then we don't know really any of the people. So we get done reading the passage, and it's like, I feel dumber than when I started. So we just skip it, right? And we just kind of move on. But for Matthew, this is a really important section. Because Matthew was the individual assigned by God to write a biography of Jesus that would speak most clearly and specifically to the questions that the Jews would have about the Messiah. And so the very first question they're going to ask, if you want this, us to believe that this guy Jesus is the Messiah, then you've got to show us, one, that he's re- truly an Israelite. You've got to show us that he's related to Abraham. And secondly, you've got to show us that he's related to King David. Because we know that the Messiah is going to be Jewish, and we know he's going to come from the lineage. He's going to come as a part of the offspring. He's going to be a descendant of King David. And so just in the the first 18 verses, Matthew erases all questions about that. 
he, point, he draws a line straight back to Abraham from, from uh, the, Jesus. But he's got, he's got a third thing that he's trying to do. And, and, and Matthew, and I think he's doing it very subtly, but he's trying to say, but you know, you guys are reading and you're looking at this through a traditional lens, right? Jesus is related to King David. Jesus is related to Abraham. All right, I get that. The very traditional said, but you know what? There's a lot of stuff that's going to be unexpected in the pages that are going to follow. And he starts to turn, just starts to introduce that just a little bit. And so we looked at, at last week is that immediately right out of the gate, Matthew presents us with some of the R-rated figures from the ancestry of Jesus. Just right away, he starts to stir the pot just a little bit. He says, you guys look back, you get all this thing. You know, but just remember, you know, Jacob had 12 sons, but he chose to use Judah. And he goes on, and, and we go back and look at the... He, 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 he uses Rahab the harlot, who we're going to look at a little bit more specifically. He uses the Moabitess, right? He uses Solomon, who comes from Bathsheba, who only became the wife of David because David committed adultery and had her husband killed. And he begins to introduce. And, and right up front, he's trying to say to you that the message of Christmas is about sin and sinners. It's not something we really see celebrated a lot, right, in our culture. When we think about it, the, the real story, the real foundation of the coming of the Messiah is about sin. That's why Jesus said, you know, I, did, I have not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And that's the message that emerges out of Matthew totally. But there are others in this passage, and, and, and we want to continue to look at this today because there, there are some ways in which that, that, that God is trying to share a different kind of message with us, something that creates an unexpected reality, right? So let's just look at a few verses here in Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read all 17 verses that relate to the genealogy that he presents to us, but I, I want us to get us down through to verse 6 today. Um, so the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew jumps right into it, right? The historical record of Jesus Christ. And you're going to ask, is he the son of David? Is he the son of Abraham? And I'm going to show you right now that he is. See, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his 12 brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does it seem a little odd to you in verse 5 that he just refers to Rahab as Rahab? Do you know in every other place that I could find in the Bible, and maybe I missed a spot, but every other place that I could find in the Bible, Rahab is identified as Rahab the harlot, right? I mean... You not only see that in the book of Joshua, which we're going to go look at in a minute, but you also see that in the book of James. 
Even in the book of Hebrews, right? Chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? The hall of fame of faith. Rahab is mentioned, and when the author speaks to us, inspired by God, he says, and even Rahab the harlot had the faith. And so we, we love to put, we love to peg people, don't we? We love to put labels on people. It helps us remember them, to categorize them, right? And we, we do that all the time. We have like Alexander the, right? You know, we have Attila the, right? We have Jabba the, there you go, see? We just, we just kind of know all that stuff. It just kind of keeps coming. And we love to label things, and we do that sometimes to ourselves. And we let the world do that to us. So let's process this Rahab the harlot just a little bit. You could also look at Ruth the Moabitess, right? You have to be a little more churchy to get that. But right, you know, and, and, and so let's go over to, to, to the book of Joshua. So I want to tell you this story of the book of Joshua, uh, of, of Rahab, just a little bit in order to get what I think is unexpected in Christmas. So the book of Joshua drops us down in the history of the people of God right at that moment when Moses is moving off the scene and Joshua is assuming leadership. Moses had been used by God to lead the people out of Egypt and he'd gotten up to the edge of the promised land and because of some things that had transpired, some ways that Moses had failed to treat God as holy, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. So he gets a look at it from the mountains that are on the east side of the, of the Jordan River, and then his time as a leader is over, and God rewards him with his eternal reward. And Joshua, this guy who's been walking with Moses through this entire journey, rises to leadership. He's the one that God has ordained. God says, you know what? Just be strong and be of good courage. So the first thing that Joshua does is, is he sends out a couple of spies into the city that must fall first in order for them to take the promised land. I mean, the whole reason why God had brought them out of Egypt was to bring them into the promised land that he had promised to Abraham. You know, and, and, and the, the first generation that came out was not, they did not meet God's qualifications, right? They, they, they didn't exercise faith, faith, it was about them, et cetera. God said, you know what, none of you are going to enter the promised land. And so in 40 years of wilderness travel, all of that generation dies off, and a new generation has risen up, and that's the group that Joshua is ready to lead across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But the first place that's got to go is a city by the name of Jericho. Unfortunately, Jericho is the most formidable city in their path. It is well fortified. So first thing Joshua does is a good military commander says, let's scout it out. So he sends up a drone and it just flies over the city. Now, they didn't have drones in those days, right? Now, I mean, what you did this is you, you, you went and you eyeballed it. So he sends out a couple of guys who go into the city of Jericho, probably disguised, trying to blend in with the Canaanites. But because the whole region was kind of on pins and needles, anticipating the coming of the Israelites, they knew something was up. They were all kind of had their, eye, you know, their eyes and ears open, and they recognized and they noticed that there's some guys in the city who shouldn't be there. And so the king of Jericho, the one who is the ruler of the city, he, he, he says, you know what, we got to find these guys. Spread out and find them. And so they're searching the entire city. So these guys take shelter. And they take shelter in the home of Rahab the harlot. Now, we don't, we don't know exactly. You know, she, she may have just been a, 
let me use the word, a rank and file prostitute. It's just the way she made it. You know, she ran an inn. Guys came. That's part of the way you attract the customers. She just might have been a rank and file prostitute. She may also have been a cultic prostitute. I mean, a lot of their religions in those days was related to fertility. It was all about, you know, we want to have good crops. We want to have good herds. We want to have a lot of offspring and et cetera. So as man was left to himself, separate from the true God, what grew up were a lot of fertility religions, the Baal and the Asherah that you're going to see later in the book of Judges. And she may have been a cultic prostitute. Somebody was a part of that worship experience where she literally engaged sexually with other people in order to arouse the gods so that the, the, the crops would grow and the herds would have their offspring. And that's the way they thought about it. That's why, you know, so... And, but we don't know for sure, but these two guys, they take shelter in her house. And, and, and they're going door to door looking for these guys. And so she strikes a bargain with them. She says, you know, I will hide you. I'll take you up in the roof. I'll put you underneath the, the flax that I've bought. This is a part of the harvest, whatever. I'll, and, and I'll hide you guys, keep you safe from them. And then when they're gone, I'll let you go. But you have to make a promise to me. We know you guys are coming into the land. We know there's nothing we can do to stop you. We know God is with you, that none of, there's nothing we can do. And I want my family delivered. And they say, okay. So they come, they search the home. They don't find them because she has hidden them well right? Rahab was a master of, of hide and seek, right? She could hide and not be found. So she put these guys where, where they were hidden and they could not be found. They come, they search the house, they don't find them. She directs them, oh, they went off this way. And so the, the, the gang, the posse, if you will, starts heading out this way. When it's night, she, lo- she lowers the men down through the window because her house was in the wall of the city. And she said, you know, if you head for the hills, you'll be safe. And so they fled, and they hid until it was safe for them to make their way back to the Israelites, and they give a full report. And they give a report of the promise that they made to Rahab. Well, the story doesn't start. So the people begin to make their way across. They've just got one issue. Between them and their objective is the Jordan River. Now, I, I don't really know much about military strategy, but I know getting across rivers is usually a big problem for armies that are marching on their feet. And so God said, I've got a solution for that, <laughs> right? So if you go and read in, in chapter 3, they, they, God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get the priests to pick up the ark, and when they step into the river, the river is going to go dry. And so the next day, when everybody's prepared, they, 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 lead, they take the ark of the covenant, which represented the presence of God. When they step into the, into the river, the water goes dry. And, and back up river, a long way, the scripture says, it gives us a location. The water just began to stand tall, and the riverbed went dry. And from there all the way down to the, sea, the Dead Sea, the river was just totally dry. And the entire nation moves across the river on dry ground. And, and much like the Lord's Supper we're going to celebrate in just a little bit, God says, this is a moment that you should not forget. So once everybody's across, and the guys are still standing in the Jordan River with the ark, right, God says, you know, take 12 guys, one from each tribe, send them back into the river, and I want you to pick up some good-sized stones, have them carry it out, and where you camp tonight, I want you to build a pillar that will serve as a monument that reminds you about what I did today. And so the 12 guys go in, they get the rock, they come back out, they build the tower, right? And, and then, um, and then when, as soon as the, the priests leave the river with the Ark of the Covenant, the water begins to flow again. 
So then they have to figure out what they're going to do with the city. And God says, here are your marching orders. Just march. <laughs> right? Just march. Right? He said, this is what I want you to do. Every day I want you to get up. I want you to have the priests in front and behind the Ark of the Covenant. I want you having them blowing their, their trumpets. And I want all the rest of the people to follow along behind. And I want you to march around the city just once every day. Except for the seventh day. On the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. So you're going to have the priests out in front, then the ark, then the rest of the priests, then all the people behind them, and I want you to march around the city on the seventh day seven times. One time for the first six days, seven times on the seventh day, and at the very end of that day, when I give the signal, I want you to blow the horns, and it's only then and only then that I want the people to yell and scream at the top of their lungs, and you'll see what will happen. So they get up, day one, they march. I, you know, I wonder what they were thinking like on Thursday, right? You know, the guys, so what, what kind of a strategy? We're just walking around, right? You know, literally, they're going around, around the circle. Like, what, what are we doing here, right? And they get to the final day, they march around at seven days. I wonder what it was like when, when they're finishing up like their sixth circuit around the city. They're like, my feet are getting tired. This is stupid. How are we, I mean, you know, and, and, and then when they get to, they, they, they complete the seventh um, cycle around the, build, around the city. The horn is blown, and, and, and Joshua gives the order, shout. And when they shout, the walls fall down. I mean, they just crumble. I mean, we don't really know why. I mean, they, people speculate, right? They think, well, maybe all of the different marching around the city, especially the seventh time, the last day, and all the trumpet noise, and except, maybe it weakened the foundations or whatever, or somehow or another, you know, the... the the, literally the, the sound blast of a million plus people screaming at the top of their lungs was enough to create this, this, you know, this shockwave. That brought, but God just did a miracle and he brought the walls down. But there's one part of the wall that didn't fall. That was Rahab's house, right? And so the people rushing, God had given them very specific instructions. I don't want any living thing to come out of the city. I want everything dead. This is judgment. This isn't warfare, this is judgment. I want every single living thing, man, woman, and child, animal, I want everything. I don't want anything to come out of the city. Anything that's precious, like metal or you know, gold, silver, iron, that kind of stuff, I want you to bring it into my treasury because I'm going to use it down the road. But everything else I want. And in the midst of that battle, and if you look at Joshua chapter 6, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn over. It's just... it's. It, It's a fascinating story, page 182. Actually, the the text is on 183, the the verses that we're going to read. So here they are. They're in the midst of the battle. The walls have fallen. A million people are rushing into the city. There is absolutely chaos, right? And they're trying to milk the last few hours of the day before it gets dark and the whole nine yards. And in the midst of all of that, Joshua remembers the promise they made. And you look at verse 22. So Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house. See the label, the peg, (laughs) how she's pegged? Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who were with her, just as you promised her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. And they they brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camps of Israel. So they burned up the city and everything in it, But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, her father's household, 
and all who belonged to her, because she had hidden the men, she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy out to buy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel to this day. It's an unexpected turn. Let me let me try to tickle this out a little bit for us. So so hopefully the point will, will come across. The one who deserved to die lives. The one who deserves to die lives. I mean, God had pronounced his judgment on the entire city. But from our perspective, you know, if, if there was anybody in the city, you know, especially as a prostitute, as a harlot, you would have think Rahab would have been at the kind of the top of the list of the first people who ought to be executed, right? Who ought to have judgment passed on them. Certainly she's far more guilty than a two-year-old or a three-year-old whose worst crime to this point in time is, is running away when mom and dad says, come, right? You know, and, and, or, 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 or taking away a toy from their, from their sibling or neighbor or whatever, those kinds of things. And yet somehow or another, the one who deserves to die lives. Not only does she lives, live, she gets redeemed. She's living among the people of God even to this day. And and if you follow the story along, and if you go back and bring in Matthew, what appears to have happened in the life of Rahab is that after the conquest took place and the people settled in, Rahab and her family found a place to live. And somewhere in the midst of that, using, you know, uh, you know, 15th century BC, you know, kind of, uh, kind of match.com network. This guy by the name of Solomon links up with Rahab. You know, who knows? Maybe it was in the village square someday and he says to his buddy, hey, go ask her if she'll have coffee with me. Right? And, and, and they have coffee, they fall in love, they get married, and lo and behold, they're going to they're gonna produce a child by the name of Boaz. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, Boaz is a leading figure in the book of Ruth. And so here's this woman who was a harlot who deserved to die, but she is granted life. She marries this guy, Solomon, and she raises up a child who acts with integrity and honor and character and grace and compassion. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. Now, this is a story that Matthew could resonate with, right? This is a story that any of the disciples could resonate with. Certainly the Apostle Paul could resonate with. But here's what I want you to get out of this, right? What was unexpected about Christmas, what was unexpected and, and hinted at in the life of Rahab the harlot is that God came to bring change in the Emmanuel. But here's here's the way we generally see it. And this is the way the Jews look for it. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come and change the world. And God sent a Messiah who came to change you and to change me. That's unexpected. 
They expected a guy who was going to be born. He was going to be the, he was going to be a greater king than David. He was going to be a greater king than Solomon. He was going to sit on the throne of Judah. He was going to throw off all of the, 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 the nations around them. And, and Israel was going to rise to the top and be the, the supreme power of the world. And God's honor and glory to his people was going to be lifted up. That's what they expected a Messiah who was going to change the world and the Messiah that came is one that came to change you and me and then to use us to change the world. See, the story of Rahab the harlot is a story of redemption. It's a story of being used in redemption. God came to bring a change to us. I mean, and, and Matthew resonates with this. We, we looked at this text last week in Matthew chapter 9, right? You know, where Matthew is a tax collector. He is an outsider. He is a traitor and a thief. He is considered to be an unredeemable sinner in the eyes of the Jews. He never want, will ever again be qualified to stand in the temple and offer us offering to God. He is isolated, alienated from God, hopeless. And then Jesus walks up to him and says, come follow me. Just like he looked at Andrew and Peter climbing off of their fishing boats and says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Just like he encountered the apostle Paul on the Damascus road who was on a mission to destroy the church to stamp out the name of Christ from ever being proclaimed again in the world. And he says, you know what? Come follow me. I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles. I mean, God is a God who steps into our lives. And, and this is the struggle we have, right? We, we, when we struggle with the Messiah in our own lives, our faith in God is like, well, wh- why do I still have problems? Why are my circumstances not changed? And I got to tell you, God wants to change the world, but he wants to change the world by changing us in the midst of our circumstances. And that's what's unexpected about Christmas. You know, and, and, and it, it is a story of redemption. And it's a story of being redeemed to be used in the story of redemption. But, but it is a message where God didn't come to change the world. He came to change you through the person of Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, I don't think a lot of people get that. I'm not sure a lot of us get that. Because we look at it and say, well, why do I still have this issue? Why does it, you know, and, 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 and God is looking for us to shed our labels or be able to embrace those labels as something that he has redeemed. Because so, some of us, you know, we, we, have, we, have, we carry baggage. We've let the world peg us or we've pegged ourselves in lots of different ways. Like, you know, like one of the ones, you know, I, and I hear this from, from more men than women in general. But you know what? I, you know, I'm just not the religious type. You know, that's just not me. We peg ourselves, right? Or I'm you know, this or that. We got all these God steps and said, I'm changing all. Because the reason the Messiah came, the reason why God is with us, is not necessarily to change all the world out there, but it's to change all the world that's in here. And the way he does that is not based upon what we do. 
I'll go to church a lot. I'll pray some more. I'll read my Bible more. I'll give some more money. You know, I'll be nice to my neighbor. I'll even forgive my brother that I really don't like. And you know, we, got, we got this whole list of things. See, you know, God, I'm moving up the ramp. You know, I'm qualified. I've overcome all this stuff. It's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what God did in Jesus Christ. Because today, born for you in the city of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And like God never wanted the Israelites to forget how they entered the promised land across a dry Jordan, so he instructed the 12 guys to go get the rocks and build a monument so they would never forget, Jesus never wants us to forget that the way the change happens, the way Christmas comes to life, is based upon what he did. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so my question to you today is, has Christmas changed you? Are there ways where you're still holding on to the back story? You can't shed that past. You can't let that label be gone. You're still pegged in that same way. Are, are, are you still trapped in the past or are you letting the true, unexpected message of Christmas through our faith in Jesus Christ impact your life? And not changing everything around you, but changing who you are in the midst of the world that you're in. Are you like Rahab living among the people of God today? That's my invitation to us. It's what God's invitation to us in Jesus is. You know, he said, I, I didn't come to call the healthy. I, I, I came to deal with the sick. I, I, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Because I didn't come to change the world from the top down. I came to change people's lives from the inside out. Because I'm the Messiah. And Jesus today is still seeking those who are lost. And he's seeking for you and for me, and he never wants us to forget that he's doing just that. So where do you stand today? Are you still over here about all the things that you can do and worried about the labels and how you look and all that kind of stuff? Or have you embraced the new you, the new creature in Christ that God's trying to give you? Because that is the message of Scripture, of, of Christmas, that God didn't come to change the world he came to change you, and he came to change me. And as he changes one life after another, he changes the world. Let's pray together for just a minute. You know, as a part of our preparation to remember the sacrifice that Christ made, I want to give you just a moment to reflect. Where do you stand today? Where do you stand? Is it still about what you've done? Is it still about what you're doing? Or is it about what Jesus has done? Is it about why he came and what he did while he was here? Where do you stand today? 
Are you still embracing the labels and the pegs that keep you separated from God? Or have you embraced the unexpected mission of Christmas? That God came to change you. you need to let God change you from the inside out this morning by faith, you can pray a prayer a lot like this. God, like Rahab, I'm not among the people of God. But like Rahab, I want to be among the people of God. So Father, forgive me and come live in me. I don't even know how that happens, but I would invite you to come live in me by faith in Christ. And as I do that, God, I'm telling you that you can change me into your child. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.